Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of AIAC Talk. I am Will Shorkey, streaming from Johannesburg, South Africa, and joined, as always, by Sean Jacobs in Brooklyn, New York City. We are the co-presenters of this, which is Africa's a Country's weekly talk and interview show, produced, as always, by the magnificent and wonderful Antoinette Engel, who is in Cape Town, South Africa. And if you missed our last show uh, last week, it was on exploring the life thought and legacy of the Pan-Africanist and anti-apartheid revolutionary Robert Sabukwe. We were especially excited by a recent publication of Sabukwe's prison letters and are wondering what insights we could gain about Sabukwe from that those letters. So we had on Derek Hook, who is the editor of that collection of letters. And we also had the historian Presses Bikitsa, as well as a returning guest, Mutani uh, Matsvi Vandila, who joined us for a discussion about Subukwi's uh, influence today. Clips of that episode are available on our YouTube channel, but we would recommend that it's better to check out the whole thing on our Patreon, along with all the other episodes from our archive. But today's show is going to be a great one. It's got a provocative title, Decolonizing COVID-19. And basically what we're doing is we're looking beyond the West to places like Vietnam, Bhutan, Cambodia, Japan, and countries in the Asian Pacific to try to understand how to manage pandemics in a way that doesn't require choosing between lives and choosing between livelihoods. Because I think what we're all starting to realize is that we're gonna see more than one pandemic in, in our lifetimes. These things are gonna become recurring problems that states are gonna have to deal with. So looking into the future, which is looking kind of bleak, to be honest, how can we best manage this, this thing that we have to start living with? And we're going to be joined by uh, Sakiko Fukurapa. It's going to be a pre-recorded interview. But before we get to that, we first, we thought, we just want to briefly flag some pieces on the site that you should all check out that we're really excited about. Uh, the first one that I want to talk about is a piece by Yotam Gidron, which is called The Politics of Blessings. So if you're faithful watchers of, of this program, you'll know that Yotam was on a few weeks ago to talk about Israel's influence in Africa, and he was joined by Matsidi Somotsoneng. And The Politics of Blessings is actually an excerpt from Yotam's book, which is called Israel in Africa. And basically what Yotam does in this article is he talks through how in African countries the rise of Pentecostalist Christianity is leading a lot of African citizens and a lot of African politicians to embrace a closer relationship with Israel. Uh, and it's, it's actually kind of interesting because, you know, for a lot, of, a lot of Zionists in Israel, this is something that they're not paying attention to, but a lot of evangelical Christians are promoting this idea that if they maintain a close relationship with Israel, then that is a way of accumulating holy blessings that is a way of ensuring that they have a path to the pearly gates and they gain admission into heaven or whatever way the doctrine is, is espoused but it's a it's a really interesting article it looks at both nigeria uganda kenya malawi as well as south africa to talk about how homegrown pentecostalist christianity as well as the influence of evangelicals in the united states and other parts of the world is sort of leading to the rise of, of Christian Zionism. So be sure to check that out. Check out Yotam's book and check out uh, clips from the episode we did with him. And my article, I don't know why Will used the word uh, faithful watcher in his intro to an article about faith. I thought you were like, <laughs> I, was like I was like, wait, what imagery? <laughs> got that for like jokes or is that real? In any case, because <laughs> um, you were talking about faith and I was like, that's that's very well done there. Good writing, Will. Um, so my, <laughs> it's my article I want to shout out um, from the site uh, appeared like, um, I think yesterday. It's by Akin Adesokan, and it's called A Special Type of Political Personality. Um, for those of you who know Akin, he is a novelist um, and also a professor of comparative literature. He teaches at Indiana University. He's originally from Nigeria. Really smart guy. He also works with Timurenga, another project that I used to be involved with. Um, but in this article, it's about the the, 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 the passing of a, a Nigerian politician called Latif Kayodi Jakande, who is sort of popularly known as Baba Kekere. Uh, he died on February 11 this year. And a lot of people were sort of 
uh, morning is death um, on Twitter. If you just if you just type up Akekere on Twitter, you'll see a lot of Nigerians talking about it. And I was sort of piqued by that. So I asked Akin, who had also tweeted about it, like, you know, why are people talking about this man so much? Like, what is his meaning? Um, he died in 92. It turns out that he was the first civilian governor of Lagos State. He had agitated for a state to be established there. Um, and then eventually he became the first civilian governor of the state. And also his death kind of coincides with the death of another politician from that same year called Abdul Kader Balarabe Musa, who was the governor of a state called Kaduna. And these politicians, they were, to get to the title of the piece, a special type of political personality, which is in a kin's word, truly progressive, office holder, well-spoken, well-informed, invested in politics as public service, heroically championing social democracy without losing sight um, of personal probity. And I just one other quick point, Akin also in the piece writes about how they get a chance to actually live out and the social experiment, which an earlier generation of African politicians like Nkrumah, Ahmed Ben Bala, Odinga Odinga and Mahmoud Dia from Senegal never had a chance to do. And so, uh, you know, and under Kekere, what Ke things like he he had a he had a great social program, economic program that involved like four four cardinal programs, low cost housing, school buildings, um, and also an ambitious metro plan. And I would recommend this article because it also it deals with something that we are obsessed with at Africa as a country, which is like usable paths. Like what 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 are things that we've tried that we can learn um, uh, that we can learn on. Um, so yeah, I could go on and on about this article, but I gotta stop because we wanna introduce the guests. So a reminder to hit our like um, and subscribe button on our YouTube, as well as follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please subscribe to our Patreon where you can access all of the show's episodes and help fund Africa as a country um, in general. Well, Yeah, so I mean, we're excited to premiere the interview with, with, with Sakiko Fukuda Pa. Uh, we're going to play that for you now. Sakiko, due to scheduling conflicts, um, Sakiko had to catch a, a flight back to Japan and was going to be in a time zone that wouldn't allow us to record the interview at a suitable hour to make the show possible. We decided to pre-record the interview with her. It was recorded yesterday on Monday, the 22nd of February, and we're going to play it all for you now. I mean, Unfortunately, you can't ask questions live to, to Sakiko. I'm sure it would have been awesome and she would have loved to answer them, but please feel free to comment, uh, participate in the chat. And if you do have desperate questions, then feel free to put them up and we'll do our best to, to get them to uh, Sakiko and, and get back to you with, with what she says. But uh, please enjoy the interview. And a reminder, Sean just said, to like and subscribe and see you in a bit. Our first guest is Sakiko Fukuda-Pa. Sakiko is a development economist and a professor of international affairs at the New School for Social Research, where her teaching and research focuses on human rights and development, global health, as well as global goal setting and governance by indicators. From 1995 to 2004, she was a lead author and director of the UNDP Human Development Reports, and her recent publications include Millennium Development Goals, Ideas, Interests, and Influence, published with Routledge in 2017, as well as, as a contributor on fulfilling social and economic rights with T. Lawson Raymer and S. Randolph for Oxford in 2015. And she's the winner of the American Political Science Association's Best Book in Human Rights Scholarship for 2016, as well as a 2019 Grewer Mayer Prize for Ideas to Improve the world order. Did you, so, Did you say that correctly, Will? <laughs> I, I don't know how that's pronounced, but uh, look, the, the bottom line is, is that Sakiko is a woman who knows a lot, she knows what she's talking about, and we're absolutely honored to have her on the show today. Sakiko, thank you for joining us. We're grateful for your time. And I want to start by asking you a question about a, a forthcoming paper of yours, where you basically make this point that by international comparison, most countries of Asia and the Pacific have been remarkably successful in containing the spread of COVID-19. So if you wouldn't mind, just to start us off, do you mind expanding on that observation? 
Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for the introduction. But one little correction. I'm not part of the New School for Social Research at the New School. I'm part of the uh, uh, programs in international. I, I, should, I should have corrected well because I'm in that same program. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, no one except for us cares about that little detail. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, 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 when I started looking at the experience of the countries of uh, Asia, and that includes, you know, everything from uh, um, uh, east uh, to south, um, including um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, uh, China. Um, South Korea, et cetera, and down to Papua New Guinea. And, um, you know, you find that all of these countries have had low incidence in comparison with the world average. I mean, the world average, um, uh, you know, the, the highest country is actually Iran, which is, you know, slightly off center in the, in the region. And they had uh, 669 deaths, which is actually above the world average, but uh, that's per million. But uh, after that, India has had 110 deaths per million, which contrasts with 1,200 uh, um, um, uh, 1, per million in the United States um, and similar level in the United Kingdom. Um, and uh, countries, um, small countries like, you know, Bhutan had just one uh, per million, and that's probably rounded up. Um, Thailand, similarly, uh, Cambodia, 0, 0.0 rounded up. I mean, so the, the point is that these countries are not all superpowers like China, or they're, they're not high income countries like Japan, and uh, South Korea only. They are also some of the poorest countries in the world. And I mean, so so just those numbers, you know, and you can say, oh, you know, our, you've got unreliable numbers, you know, you've got, haven't got enough testing, whatever it is. It, those numbers are something that should ask you to please look further. And the fact that, that these very low income countries in Asia managed to contain the pandemic. I mean, I think the main thing is that they didn't let it go wild like, like happened in the United States, UK, much of Europe, um, but they sort of stopped it before it got out into the community. And in, in that really, I think, uh, compels an understanding of of what happened. I mean, if you, um, there's a chart actually that, um, that, that we put together um, that shows this in a very graphic way because all of the, you can barely see the caseload, new cases every, you know, in, in these Asian countries, whereas you have this incredible graph going up like this, you know, in the US and the UK and, and so forth. It just, doesn't compare. So, um, but, and I think that, and I, I just want to say that, you know, that it becomes a little more than just a sort of a, oh, well, isn't it um, strange that people don't really take, pay much attention to the experience of the Asian countries, you know, other, um, other people have gone much further um, K.S. Jomo, who is um, a very prominent economist and former um, uh, assistant director general of um, FAO and, um, and of UN uh, Department for Economic and Social Affairs says, you know, he writes in the Pandemic Discourses article, nothing to learn from East Asia. COVID-19 infection and rate death rates in the Western world and many developing countries in Asia and Latin America have long overtaken East Asia since the second quarter of 2020. Perhaps unsurprisingly, considering prevailing Western accounts of the Asian financial crises, there have been no serious efforts to draw policy lessons from East Asian contagion containment. So he's referring to the fact that there's a sort of a long history of ignoring experience of, of East Asia particularly. But I would say that it's not, in this case, it's not just East experience of East Asia, it's, it's also Southeast Asia, South Asia, 
country like Bhutan, you know, has had very few cases or, or even deaths. Um, and Gil Eyal, a social scientist, a prominent social scientist says, in the same publications, Futures Present, the most glaring fact of this pandemic year is that the advanced Western liberal democracies have failed to control the pandemic, while the East Asian countries all do. This is true on any conceivable measure, but is most startling when one looks at the cumulative confirmed COVID-19 deaths. And, and these are some of the graphs that I showed you. And just to yeah. illustrate, you know, like Japan has had 6,000 deaths um, starting from January of last year, whereas the United States is just about surpassing about a a half a million, 500,000. So you've yeah. argued, you've argued in, in that same essay, you say that the crucial factor for why Asia is doing better or has done better with, with the pandemic um, is what you refer to as strengths in the capacity of institutions in government and society in managing the public health crisis. Can you just say a little bit about then about those about those factors, the, these uh, the, these capacities in institutions? Yeah, I, I mean, you have to start with, with the fact that they had no resources in terms of technological expertise or um, financial resources, except for the high income countries like Singapore, Japan, Korea. Um, but, you know, Mongolia, Bhutan, Laos uh, really did not. And the, 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 the public health knowledge, I mean, sort of, this is, this is not rocket science, you know, they've been, um, societies have been dealing with infectious diseases for centuries right and so there's a lot of knowledge in public health about how to contain infectious diseases and with these um infectious diseases that that, that are affect your you know lungs and so forth like flu and, and and things like coronavirus you know that you have to wear masks uh, but really, the first line of defense is closing your borders from, from this thing coming into your country and then um, identifying, testing, isolating the cases that you find. So tracing. So it's really testing, tracing, isolating. And of course, you have to treat the, the people who are ill with ventilators and so forth. But you know, this is the, the point about this virus this is a new virus and it's not, uh, therefore there are no treatments that are known to be effective, right? I mean, there are all kinds of ways that you deal with it, but nothing special that's, that was developed back in April or March and there are no vaccines. So with, without a vaccine, without treatment, you know, your first line of defense is that tracing and isolating, which is all administrative. It's that administrative capacity. And, and the second thing, you know, is that it goes beyond that, those sort of technical interventions, if you like, is that you have to have leadership that is capable of making quick decisions and all these countries make these quick decisions. And that, that has the capacity to work with private sector, work with different ministries of the government you know and you know when you go when i traveled to japan in october and i felt like oh the minister of health has taken over the airport so it wasn't like ministry of foreign affairs and immigration services etc before you got to passport control you had to go through a quarantine check so that kind of thing requires this sort of an administrative coordination and, and I think that leadership to take quick action to coordinate amongst different actors in society and then there is the communication part of it with with society and I think this is not just unique to to the uh, Asian countries it's something that's noted for example in uh, New Zealand um, and, and, you know, I think one of the most interesting thing is the experience of the African countries. African countries also have had very low incidence and um, people in places like Rwanda and Senegal have been speaking up to say, you know, we've done a very 
uh, important job of um, actually taking action early on uh, to um, stem the spread um, much earlier than in the um, Western European uh, countries in the United States, North, you know, Canada, etc. So yeah, that's that's all extremely fascinating, and I think one element of it that I'd like to explore is the question of what makes it effective administration. So when I think of the South African experience, uh, when the pandemic first emerged here, there was actually quite decisive leadership in the early stages. So yeah. a ministerial advisory committee was put together, the borders were shut immediately. Yeah. There was a lot of engagement with different levels of society yeah. towards figuring out uh, a consensus-based approach, but one that was also about taking decisive leadership. But when you think about the coming months, just how South Africa's poor state administration started to become exposed when it came to the question of trying to coordinate large bodies of people to act in a certain way. And then a criticism that is often made against some of these countries that have been able to coordinate uh, large groups of people to act in a certain way is that it, there's always a tendency towards uh, authoritarianism, the yeah, sort of yeah. Um, yeah. You know the sort of lazy critique yeah. that's made. But, yeah. but I guess the question is how do we how do we distinguish uh, capable administration uh, without it sort of crossing over yeah. to authoritarianism? Yeah. Then I mean, when we think of an article you wrote, for example, very recently about about the experience in Japan, uh, a country where you know the government really didn't do much, but uh, <laughs> citizens were still ready and able and willing to to take this thing on and to act uh, yeah. in the expected ways. And just to just to add on to that, I think right at the beginning when it seemed China was keeping numbers down, there was a lot of articles in the West that sort of said, "So does authoritarianism work better when you have a pandemic?" Like a lot of that sort of debate came out of it. If you maybe yeah. can track some of that, yeah. Yeah. So I think that one one aspect of this is simply kind of public health technicalities. So what I have noticed is that. Um, this business of contact tracing and isolating is really strategic in keeping uh, uh, in, in, in really focusing on containing the spread. So we, we think of things like the lockdown and wearing masks as something as sort of like a generalized um, universal, you know, dictat that you must stay at home and you know you must wear a mask you must wash your hands I and mean, this is for everybody but then there is a much less well publicized and much less um well-known issue of of method of basically contact tracing which um which which if you if you do it properly um can actually at ver the very early stages keep on kind of stamping out the new cases from spreading, right? And so this is something that I think these countries did a lot more of. Um, it, you hardly hear anything about it. So, you know, recently um, there was a very uh, funny interview with Jeremy Hunt, the UK Secretary of Health from 2012 to 2018, when he admitted that they just made a mistake. He said, we did exhaustive pandemic preparations. We were lauded by Johns Hopkins University as being a second best prepared country in the world. But we were also part of a group think that said that the primary way to respond to a pandemic is the flu pandemic playbook with a focus on areas like vaccination and boosting hospital capacity, rather than the methods you would use for SARS and MERS, surveillance, containment, community testing, contact tracing and isolation, and stockpiling personal protective equipment and ventilators. So I mean, this element of contact tracing is really important to sort of stop it at the, at the beginning, right? And then isolating. So um, I think in many of uh, these countries in Asia, they invested a lot. Certainly in Japan, it was the main kind of investment. 
And uh, once you were, you know, identified as potentially having been exposed or, or being the source of the spread, then you were obliged to isolate. And I think that may also, you know, require some coercion because, you know, you have to be isolated and they are, you, you, are, you are actually supported in that isolation in that you are not necessarily just asked, oh, just stay at home. You're actually um, either asked to or invited to, or you have the option of quarantining in a different place. Because a lot of people can't isolate at home if you live with other people, quite frankly. Um, and and I, I don't think it necessarily has to be coercive. Um, uh, so I don't really know. I mean, I think this is something that would be really interesting to explore. So I think there is a simple kind of a judgment call about the importance of contact tracing. And um, in, I think in the um, many countries, you know, contact tracing is just considered to be like just the, this mobile app, you know, and, and whereas in, and, and in fact, the technology is used and it's then uh, it, technology is also accused of, of infringing on your privacy and on all of that. Um, but, but then the basic contact tracing is manual. I mean, like in Japan, it's manual contact tracing. But then why is it that in the UK, for example, they know how to do contact tracing. They have a history of public health infrastructure that knows about contact tracing and infectious diseases. But once somebody offered them a, an app, you know, they jump at it and say, oh, that's what we're going to do to solve the problem of contact tracing. So there wasn't that kind of a serious commitment to contact tracing and isolation, I think, as exist, existed in uh, the, these Asian countries. Really? And then, yeah. um, well, can well, I just address this thing about authoritarian? Because it's really interesting. I think related to that is the fact that we have the Wuhan model, right? That we think that Wuhan was all about locked ferocious walk down and if you are found walking outside you know you're instantly fined or whatever or worse who knows but i heard people in in uh, barcelona <laughs> talking about being told by some you know military or uh, police you know what are you, where are you going young lady kind of stuff you know so um or even neighbors saying that but people are saying you know is lockdown really the way to control the pandemic right um because it's kind of a generalized lockdown it's first totally difficult impossible to implement in any sort of a humane way and you know these countries of asia didn't have lockdowns they didn't all have lockdowns in the style of wuhan uh you know, certainly Japan never had a lockdown because the country has such a weak government in terms of state power that there is there is no government authority to impose a harsh lockdown. But Japan, by the way, Japan from, you know, and we recommend that people go read your article in Pandemic Discourses, the one about, I think it's called A Visit uh, yeah, pandemic you know, from Tokyo. Yeah, a diary. Yeah, and and but one of the things I think you sort of play around with is like, what is the role of the state? And you you just said the Japanese state is quite weak. But I just saw um, since your article, Japan actually they have announced some kind of curfew and lockdown that came with some penalties. I mean, can you say like how that's working out? Um. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that they've imposed this uh, state of emergency that has um, imposed that. But, you know, there are a lot of debates within Japan about the uh, whether the whether the government, what level of um, authority the government should have for imposing fines and things like that. And I, and I, and I just want to emphasize that, you know, in this comparative perspective, it's really interesting to see how lockdowns are being uh, enforced and implemented because um, as I mentioned already, you know, the countries of Asia have very, very different strategies and um, not every country had a lockdown. They also have very different kinds of state. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think Vietnam, for example, which is considered to have a very sort of a strong um, interventionist uh, state, um, I don't think they really had a lockdown either. So maybe they didn't need it, I suppose. Um, Taiwan is a country that is very well, um, you know, known for the, you know, for having uh, had uh, a good good um, effect on good good record on um, keeping the pandemic under control, and they are extremely um, participative in the way that they have um, developed mechanisms, developed uh, norms, and things like that, and so. I mean, I, I think we just have to go beyond this, you know, black and white categorization of authoritarianism versus, you know, democracy or whatever. I, I'm not sure that regime type makes that much difference. What might, um, what what we're seeing is that a variety of approaches with citizens, participation, consultation with, with with citizens, communication with citizens. Um, you know, a lot of um, people have commented on the use of like historical cultural imagery. In my students in my my pandemics class in the fall were wonderful because they wrote a lot about different countries. And you know, apparently Norway, the leaders would write about you know national emergency in times uh, past. Um, similarly, you know, the prime minister of uh, uh, New Zealand. Um, you know, called on uh, national unity and and things like that. In the same way that that all these countries of Asia have done. So, um, I think it's these these capacities of leadership to inspire uh, national unity. I think is obviously something that's been highlighted everywhere, and that's kind of evident in many of these countries in Asia. Um, and um, so I don't, I'm not, I don't, you know, I think what's interesting in this, looking at the countries of Asia is because they include such a range of characteristics uh, in terms of their political systems, in terms of their economic systems, in terms of their cultural background, their history, uh, and all of that. And I, I, I don't think that, you know, looking for these cultural and you know, explanation or regime type explanation is particularly helpful. But, and, I, and I find it very unhelpful, particularly because you can't fix that, if you know what I mean, in, in, particularly in the, the overnight, and we need an overnight solution to the, the, the ever-spreading and mutating uh, virus. So for you, you, you also in that same essay, based on the research you did in Asia, you argue that what based on based on what you observed that COVID-19 has exposed some key gaps in national and global institutions that require uh, priority um, yeah. and you I, in the article you isolate like three of them can you just talk a little bit about like yeah. those three ones that you think really we need to move on yeah so if we I mean I think of the pandemic as a human and social crisis not as a medical crisis right I'm a I'm a social scientist I'm an economist I I'm not you know, um, I'm not a public health specialist. I'm not a, a medical, uh, I'm not an epidemiologist. Um, and so it's not enough to, to stem the pandemic. You have to address the socioeconomic consequences, right? And, the, um, and, and I, I think that there is a consensus, in fact, that the pandemic is exposing, amplifying, inequalities of various kinds and actually um, showing how the existing structural inequalities are um, just kind of playing into uh, the social consequences. And um, so, you know, at the, um, at, at the level of these countries in, uh, in Asia, South Asia and East Asia, I mean, you, you're exposing how the lockdown, for example, affects people differently. The lockdown, I mean, we know living in the US, in New York, you know, whoever you are, you know that women have been very adversely affected by the, the mounting, you know, tasks of 
childcare and you know multi multitasking childcare with with paid work and and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a gender dimension to that, but much more, you know, the socioeconomic inequalities in access to healthcare, the social determinants of health that have meant that uh, any impact, the health impact has been disproportionately felt by um, uh, lower income people, by, um, you know, minorities, ethnic racial minorities and, and marginalized people and migrants and so forth. Um, but I, I, so, you know, I think, I think about this in the global setting and, um, well, let me, sorry, let me go back to these national issues. And I, and I don't think that you can say that these Asian countries have been successful because I don't think that they have given enough, um, attention to these, uh, unequal impacts of the, not just the pandemic, but, uh, affects the way that it has affected the way that the the policy measures that have kept the pandemic down has affected different people so you know not just the lockdown but all kinds of um um social and economic consequences of the, the global recession so there are basically three kinds of effects on people one the actual health you know catching coronavirus catching covid 19 the second is the effect of the lockdown and other measures to contain the virus. Um, and then third, the global economic recession. And all of these have had, each of these actually has had unequal effects. And that's very well documented by all kinds of studies, uh, by all kinds of people. But um, I think I just want to take it to the global level where you see these global inequalities playing out and the failure of, of global institutions. So, you know, I look at the global economy in terms of the way that people engage with, uh, with it through global value chains and workers in the global economy in the global south are basically doing the low wage, low skill manufacturing and production work you know, garments is is a classic example of that, you know, so electronics and, you know, things of that kind. And when the pandemic hit, of course, their vulnerability is exposed um, and um, in that they don't have the bargaining power to um, not be the first to be laid off um, or you know, migrant workers, for example, maybe they have, have the most precarious forms of employment arrangements and they may be the first to be laid off. Um, and so in the global setting, um, those workers doing the most um, low paid work tend to be the ones who are laid off because demand has come down, global demand, you know, when, when, the, when the pandemic hit Europe, uh, then in North America, then global demand, for example, for electronics or for garments went shooting down. And then the, the, um, the brands uh, canceled orders, actually didn't pay for the orders. The factories employing the workers couldn't pay the workers and they got fired without any sort of compensation. So, I mean, that just shows you that the, these structural inequalities in power um, and bargaining power is what leads to the vulnerable people uh, being most 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 hurt. Um, so the the uh, the gaps in national and international institutions that that ensure that workers' rights, human rights to work, to decent work, are you know enforced and implemented. That that corporations actually have responsibility to comply with those international human rights standards. I think is what you know makes makes this pandemic extremely um, unequal in its impact uh, on people, and you know we all also know about another example, of course, the the vaccine nationalism and um, mm. the way that. I want to ask a question about that actually. I mean, because you've you've set up really really wonderfully uh, how you know the global power structure, which still follows 
imperial distributions has meant that the economic impacts are unevenly distributed. And what I found very interesting about the past year is that there's starting to be a recognition of this. So the United Nations, for example, and Antonio Guterres speaking a lot about how uh, we need to chart a more redistributive path. If, if capitalism is to save itself, then we need to see uh, not only internal redistribution of wealth, but redistribution of wealth from the global north to the south. And a lot of these, this talk about how we need to change these power structures. But when you think, and you're talking about uh, vaccine nationalism, when you think at, at the most basic and immediate level, which is trying to encourage more multilateral cooperation on, on matters of public health, uh, a lot of those efforts are, are proven to be you know, very sloppy. So uh, as you pointed out in what you wrote, the COVAX facility yeah. and Africa is also yeah. playing a part in, which was supposed to secure all of these doses yeah. for equitable distribution. That's mostly been a failure. So, yeah. so what's happening there? How come despite all of this talk about multilateralism, cooperation and, and so on, the, the actual practical efforts have been so poor? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of talk about, you know, vaccine distribution, et cetera, which is, it, it sort of clouds the, the, the basic fact, you know, which is that we have a global crisis, you know, it's to everybody's interest that, that you have a vaccine to, to stop it. So you, so there has to be a, an approach to, vaccine research development distribution that is based on solidarity because it's in everybody's self-interest. I mean, those of us living in the United States, um, you know, even if we all get vaccinated, as long as it's somewhere else in the world, a new mutation will come and then, you know, will spread again. I mean, it's not something and, and so vaccines are a public good in, in a multiple ways. I mean, the fact that you get a vaccine doesn't stop me from getting one. So there's, there's no reason why you shouldn't share it. Um, if you want to make profit from it and you want to monopolize it, of course you don't want to share it. But mm. the, the COVAX facility was not set up to encourage sharing of technology. Governments, you know, uh, foundations put a lot of money into this Part to help finance the development of it. Um, you know, Oxford University, you know, Pfizer, all these companies and research institutes, you know, develop a, a vaccine. But uh, there was no effort made to make sure that that technology was shared. Um, and uh, if, if you, technology is not shared under the current trade agreements of, you know, the World Trade Organization's trips agreement and intellectual, that imposes intellectual property and all of that. But even if you're not thinking about intellectual property, you know, you also need to share the technology, the know-how. So there isn't that commitment to the solidarity principle of sharing the technology. The second thing is that COVAX is basically a North-South aid model where rich countries and foundations are saying, okay, you know, we have this vaccine that's developed with a lot of public money and that's being produced by corporations um, because then governments of rich countries will make deals with the corporations to buy it. Then, you know, we have to have a facility where, where countries that did not contribute to the to the development of this uh, this vaccine would still get access to it. And so they set up this COVAX where half of the, the, the pot, so to speak, would go to the, to the countries of the South, particularly the low-income countries. Um, but that's an aid model, you know, where basically you have the existing business model for uh, pharmaceutical development, which is a private system where private companies put in money and they get uh, they get to keep their um, right monopoly rights to uh, to the uh, to the technology for the first 
20 years or whatever the terms might be according to the national jurisdiction. And, um, but that, that sort of a, a commercial model is not a solidarity model. And, and if you can only improve it by subsidizing corporations for development and then subsidizing poor countries for consumption, you get this very imperfect result where you know you get a trickle of uh, production coming out that is far inadequate to the to meet the, the the supply i mean the demand and where the queue for access is you know depends on your purchasing power i mean it's like saying in a country you know oh you've got a flu vaccine but you know, Sean, you paid more taxes than I did. I did. So you get the first job. And, and I, you know, here's my tax return, you know. They, they're doing that in Florida. They're doing it in Florida and South Dakota where they put you on a VIP list and they they, they put you near the top. So that, yeah. that is happening. I mean, we yeah. can, I know we've kept you here for, for a while. We, we, I think we went way over, but it's an interesting discussion. In fact, I was going to jump into and ask you about um, shouldn't we just say goodbye to this Western model, given that this is about, hey, what can we learn from Asia? And because you, as some, I think Ashal Prabhupada was saying, you know, uh, the Chinese vaccine, the Russian vaccine is being administered outside the West on a mass scale. Why are we sort of spending all our energy on like wanting to know what the West is doing right by us or whatever? Shouldn't we just like break from it and do something else? Um, and maybe before you answer, I think as part of your answer, I think th this is the last question because we don't want to keep you here forever. Um, this is a show primarily that that these you know we we care about what does this stuff mean for Africans, and I think the intent was we wanted to know what is the lesson from with COVID from Asia for Africans and why aren't Africans looking? I mean, it's sort of connected to my question about the Russian and the Chinese vaccine. Why aren't we looking to Asia? Why aren't Africans saying, look at look how Asian countries have kept the numbers down? Look at the methods that they've implemented. It's, as you said, different types of regimes. But is there, why aren't we looking at that? And what can we, you know, what is it that we could yeah. take in the end? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, African countries have actually already done the similar things as uh, Asia. And I think there's a lot of, uh, I, I think we need to bolster the belief in these traditional methods of, of uh, epidemic disease control. Uh, by two things. One is um, having self-confidence in that knowledge. And second is the um, further bolstering public health systems, you know, particularly primary health systems. Um, there are certain things that you need to have capacity in. I mean, obviously the UK has a good primary health system, but it wasn't kind of enough because they were so seduced by this group thing that they needed. They didn't need to do contact tracing, uh, but they needed to boost hospital capacity before they had any cases. So um, I, I think that um, a real hard look at what pandemic preparedness actually means is, is important. And because internationally, the actually what the, the sort of the regime that is in place is a, a little strange. I mean, it is a regime for something called health security, which our colleague Manjari Mahajan describes as a system that was basically developed to keep diseases that arise in Asia and Africa out of Europe and North America. I mean, it's sort of like this, just, this, this paradigm of thinking that says, you know, these dangerous diseases come from the global south and we have to keep the global north safe from it. That, I think the countries of Africa, countries of Asia need to sort of really challenge that paradigm and uh, develop their own um, approaches. And I think there's this very interesting thing that's going on politically, which is really, you know, going to maybe change the way these things are discussed. You were saying earlier that there's there's no one size fits all approach, but it does seem mm -hmm. like the lesson you draw from this is learning from past experience, which yeah. you think of South Africa, for example, we, for all intents and purposes, at least as of recently, successfully managed an HIV and AIDS epidemic, but we've used 
I think very little of the lessons gleaned from that to understand how to deal with COVID. Um, I think in, in West Africa, there's the experiences of managing Ebola. So it's it's not like disease, infectious disease yeah. is a new thing. Yeah. Of course, nothing has quite yet existed yeah. on the scale of COVID-19. Yeah. But it's almost, we, we almost sort of treated the, the novelty of yeah. this disease as an excuse to forget all of the common sense that it comes with yeah. managing disease. Yeah. Right. Um, Actually, a lot of the African governments did a lot of that primary healthcare, the approach that you described in Japan. They did a lot of that, but in the write-ups, it, it wasn't coming out like that. I mean, the press yeah. was kind of expecting them to do that. That you know, we need we need more hospital beds and all. They, in fact, a lot of the original. We to South Africa and Kenya as being the leaders on the continent on how to manage this because Africa adopted the the Western lockdown as soon as possible model. Um, but yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. 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 Anyway, anyway, we want to thank, thank you for coming on the show. Um, we kept you here way longer, but because the, the discussion was so good and we learned a lot. And uh, thank you very much for coming on, Sakiko. Yeah. Thank you very much. And I'm sorry I spoke for too long. <laughs> I enjoyed it very much. We've had you for longer is the truth. <laughs> we had a minute of the questions where we were like telling each other, hey, we got to stop. But uh, thank yeah. you very much. Okay. Thank, okay. You, so thank much. you very much. Bye-bye. Who are those two guys? That was, that was weird. Those two guys in, took over our show. I don't know who they are. Do you know and them? Watching, watching ourselves, like, it's kind of strange. And then um, sort of laughing at the dumb jokes, the nerd jokes. <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. I think that was weird. Um, but in any case, if you didn't notice, that was a pre-recorded interview uh, with Sakiko uh, Fukuda Par, who is a development economist and at the New School. She happens to be a colleague of mine. Um, and we had planned to interview her and two other people. But um, time zones and just people's availability led to also we not having the other two on. But we're hoping later on during the season or we could bring on um, people who've worked in Kerala because we think that's interesting. I think in the first wave, uh, Kerala had an interesting strategy. Uh, Vietnam is the other one that we're hoping to bring somebody onto the program um, to talk. And then somebody just in the comments uh, while watching mentioned the AU. The AU uh, is pooling uh, vaccines and, and maybe we want to bring somebody who's familiar with that process uh, to kind of analyze that for us. So look out for that in the future. Uh, I think next week we're talking culture again. We are going to be- Yeah, it's going to be an exciting show. You'll have to wait till tomorrow we start advertising, but we're having a really yeah. interesting, interesting um, we're going to go back to talk a little bit more about television, film, um, and we're planning to have some interesting, sorry, interesting guests on. So I don't know. I, I don't have anything else much to add. Um, uh, I think you've said it all. I think you've said it all. Just uh, as usual, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, mm -hmm. Sorry you couldn't ask any of your questions, but I think the conversation that was happening in the com comments was really thoughtful. Uh, you guys are as part of, as much of the show as we are, so we, we really appreciate you, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you very much to Antoinette Engel, our super producer, who's able to sort of very craftily put all of this together and um, see you next week. And until then, stay well, stay safe. Goodbye.